how do I as a disciple live in the right headspace to live the life God's called me to live as a believer? I see four things in this passage. Let me read it to you. It's in the book of Acts. Some people call it the gospel of Acts. Acts is in the New Testament and it bridges history between um, the ascension of Jesus. Okay, so he, he lived, he was crucified, he rose from the dead, and then there was uh, 40 days afterwards that Jesus, after his resurrection, where he was on the earth and he was appearing to people and telling people that he was explaining to them what he accomplished and how it applies to their life. And then he was setting the church up to kind of get started. And so there was 40 days, then he ascends to heaven. Then 10 days later, the 50th day after um, after. Jesus' crucifixion, the 50th day afterwards was the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and fell on the 120 or so people who took Jesus up on his offer in Jerusalem. They received the power of the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses, to become evangelists. Understand that up to this point, evangelists didn't exist. There was no such career. Jews weren't going to other nations converting people to Judaism. Jews are like, we're the ones of the covenant. Everyone else has rejected the covenant. They're outside of the covenant. There are God's people and there are other people. That was their whole headspace towards faith at that point. And that wasn't necessarily completely incorrect. They were God's chosen people, even though you do have some examples in the Old Testament of people outside of Judaism accepted God as the one true God and converted into Judaism. But here you have mostly Jews who had received the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're witnessing and telling about Jesus to mostly other Jews, and they're seeing conversions. So before this story happens, you have that event that happened. You have the church spreading all over Jerusalem, which is the first part of Acts is the main geographical hub. You have Christianity spread. Then around Acts chapter 7, um, you, have the, uh, you have persecution that breaks out against the Christians by you know, the, these hardcore, hardcore Jews. And, the, and you have this persecution that breaks out, breaks out led by you know, the head of the, the angry Jews at that point, which was Saul. And at that point, you have what's called the diaspora. The persecution broke out in Jerusalem. Christians in Jerusalem had one of two choices at that point in Acts chapter 7. We stay here in Jerusalem and we ride it out, knowing that it's likely going to mean that we get murdered or we have to go underground. Or we pack up our family and we just flee, but we decide we're going to be true to Christianity and we'll just flee by faith as far away from Jerusalem as we can get to escape this persecution, taking our family and our faith along with us, and we'll just have to try and settle into a place where we don't know the language and where we're not at the top of the food chain, and we'll just try and eke out a new living. And in so doing, the gospel began to spread out of Jerusalem, and the geographic hub of Acts moves from Jerusalem to a city called Antioch. In between that story and where we're at today, there is one really cool, well, there are a couple cool stories, some about Peter, but there's the conversion of Saul. I've preached about that a lot. Saul, the, this guy who grew up a Jew, had dual citizenship, was one of the, you know, the head honchos at the time, highly educated, studied under Gamaliel, was a really heady guy, but did not accept Jesus being the Christ. One of his main objections was, he knew who Jesus was, one of his main objections was, we believe, the Jews said, we believe the Lord our God is one, and here comes Jesus, and he says he's God too. So we have at least the God that I already worship and this guy. That's more than one. 
So he couldn't possibly be speaking in alignment with Scripture. He's blasphemous, and all these other people are a destabilizing obstacle to Judaism. All these new Christians are supporting this guy, and we're losing traction in the Jewish faith, and they have to be eliminated. So he thought he was pleasing God when actually he was persecuting God by persecuting his followers. Saul is converted on the road to Damascus. As he's traveling along the way with his heart set on killing other Christians, God speaks to him. I want you to know that God can speak to anybody at any time. You don't even have to be in the womb of worship. Here was a man who wasn't having pleasant thoughts about Jesus Christ. He's not cuddling up with Leviticus and a cup of coffee thinking about how he can serve his fellow man. He is on the way to investigate and kill Christians. And on the way, God speaks to him in a way that was clear and undeniable and that changed his entire life. And so he's converted, and now his new challenge is that he's no longer accepted by the, the hardline Jews, and he's not accepted by the Christians because they, they don't trust the sincerity of his conversion. Like, this guy, this guy could be a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is his new tactic to infiltrate us. We don't really think that he's sincere in his conversion. So he's kind of stuck in between, but eventually finds a little bit of a role in the church. And here's what happens next. Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. Among the prophets and teachers of the church at Antioch of Syria were Barnabas... Simeon, called the black man, so, you know, political correctness, there we go. Uh, Lucius from Cyrene, Manian, the childhood companion of King Herod Antipas. And if you want to dig deep into the story, just take that phrase. I don't know how much you know about King Herod Antipas. This is a fascinating story of how two people can grow up in the same household and come out completely different. So you may want to dig into him a little bit. And Saul, okay, so this is Saul before he was renamed Paul. He's actually renamed Paul. We see it later in this chapter, verse 9. We're not there today, but at this point he was Saul. So the, at this point, he's among the prophets and the teachers at the church at Antioch. Not in Jerusalem. This is Antioch. One day, as these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, appoint Barnabas and Saul for the special work to which I have called them. So after more fasting and prayer, the men laid their hands on them and sent them on their way. So Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They went down to the seaport of Seleucia, and then they sailed for the island of Cyprus. Again, we can dig real deep into this passage. I don't have time to do that together this morning, but I I would encourage you to spend some time if you have a good study Bible or even if you have access to some reliable commentaries or online resources. Study out uh, some more of the themes and the history behind this passage. There's a lot of really good application there, but I just want to stay aerial this morning. Here's exactly, the simplest way I can describe what's going on is this. These are brand new Christians who do not have the benefit that we have today of a body of teaching. They did not have denominations with a body of doctrine. There was no such job as an evangelist. There was no, no such job as a missionary at this point. They didn't have facilities and structures and buildings in town known as the church This was all brand new to them. They had a powerful conversion experience through Jesus Christ. Their lives were turned upside down. They felt a compelling desire through the Holy Spirit to know God better. They were deeply devoted to studying the scriptures, to fasting, to prayer, to corporate worship. They were very involved in the social life. The church and the social life of that day were absolutely one and the same. If you read through Acts, they were involved in taking care of widows, orphans. They had feeding programs for the poor. They were involved in ministering daily to the sick. Their homes, the residences of the communities were the places where this all took place. They did not have the benefit of having a place they could rent 
on the weekly, but people were being converted by coming into the homes of other Christians, sharing meals together, sharing life together, and conversations would come up. Why do you do this so differently? Why? There's something different about you and the way that we live. And of course, Jews to Jews, you would see big differences in the way that they approach things. The gospel is being told, and the Bible says in Acts twice up to this point that people were being converted in multiplication numbers. Every day it says there were conversions happening. So this is what's going on. There's a lot of stuff going on that was not necessarily backed up or explained by literature, research, history. They're just kind of trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing. And one day you've got five of the main pastors and teachers and prophets of the church. And what they're doing is they're spending time together worshiping. Were they singing? Were they praising? Were they dancing? Were they lifting hands? Were they playing instruments? We don't know. Luke doesn't tell us. We know that they were worshiping. And we know that that wasn't unusual for them. We also see that they were fasting. Fasting means to abstain from food in order to, uh, you know, to go after something spiritually, to abstain from something for a purpose or for a cause. They were doing these things. And as they were doing this, it says the Holy Spirit said to them, did he speak out loud? Did he put an impression in someone's thoughts that they shared with the other men? We don't know. All we know is that it was clear. And the content of that message was, you're gonna, you need, of the five of you, we need to break you guys up. Of the five of you, two of you, I have a special, better translation, different, currently undone job for them to do. Now, we don't see what it is in that verse. He doesn't say, listen, they're going to become carpenters and build churches all over the world. He doesn't say, they're going to now focus on a brand new ministry to kids, tweens, and teens. We'll call it the well. We don't know. We don't know what it is in that verse, but we can guess We can fill in the blanks by reading the rest of the story, and we see one of the next major event that happens after this paragraph is that Paul and Barnabas become like the first commissioned missionaries. And they're not headed towards the Jews, which was a big debate in the church at the time. Peter thought, listen, this message needs to get to all our Jewish brothers and sisters. And you got Paul who's saying, but what about the Gentiles? They they also deserve to hear about the gospel. And God said, Everybody needs to hear about the gospel. So obviously it's starting here among the Jews first. But God's plan was to get the gospel all over the world. He even used things like persecution to spread it. And so what you have here is the very next thing that happens after this is that Barnabas and Saul, who would be called Paul, would become the very first missionaries. They didn't know they were the first missionaries. They they couldn't go to Springfield, Missouri and have four years of training. They didn't get to come to churches like ours and have a pastor say, hey, will you come and tell us about it and we'll all collect money? All they knew is that God was saying, I'm going to set you apart to go tell the gospel to the Gentiles. It's never been done before. You're going to have to stop doing what you're doing now. Do something different. Whole bunch of logistics involved. What happened? How did they get in the headspace to do that? The big idea is this. I see it in this passage, and it's true of you and me. The big idea is when it comes to serving others, which is what Barnabas and Saul were already doing in Antioch, but then God speaks to them, and they change the location and the methods and the audience, when it comes to serving others, the two primary, question, primary questions to consider this. What is God showing you? And how are you responding to it? If there's two questions you bring out in your own life every now and again on the daily basis to orient yourself and to get your God goggles on, your God hearing aids on, and your God megaphone attached, these are two really good centering questions. What is God showing me today and what am I doing about it? What is it? What's that one thought that keeps coming back to my mind? And is that just a random thing or is that God speaking to me? And what am I doing about it? It might be somebody that you know 
And you don't even know why, but they're not normally a part of your normal thought patterns, but they keep coming back to your mind today for some reason. It is one of two things. It's either just totally random or God's trying to speak to you. What is it that God is showing you today? Number one. Number two. How are you responding to it? We see that mapped out here. We see a very simple way that these gentlemen got their heads right to serve. They worshipped. They heard from God. Then they fasted and prayed about what they think they thought they heard. And then they went out and did it. They worshipped. They prayed. They heard from God. They prayed some more. And then they acted. How simple is that? I'll tell you this. If you live a life of worship before the Lord with no obstacles between you and Him, you keep the pipelines open for a free exchange of information, thoughts, feelings, back and forth all the time. And in that pipeline, out of those exchanges, there will be times where God will speak to you very clearly and you don't need to go pray about it for an hour. You'll just know, I need to act on this right now. I'm here at the grocery store. There's someone who can't reach something on the top shelf and I can and they're looking around and they're frustrated. Okay, I don't need to be like, you know what? Maybe God's talking to me right now. Let me go out to the car and take 20 minutes and really pray this through. You, you act, right? But then there's, there's other times where maybe God is talking to you about something and it's not immediately obvious what he means by what you think he's saying. Or he's being very, very, very clear. You need to stop this. You need to start this. And you're hearing him clearly but it's a big one. It's a big step of faith on your part. And before you put all the wheels in motion, you may need to pause and fast and pray about it some more. It might be a career change. It might be about severing a relationship. It might be about making a major financial decision for you and your family. It might be about going on a mission trip or starting a new ministry team. It might be about changing schools for your children. It can be any number of things, but sometimes God comes out of left field, it seems like, and he'll drop something on your heart in a time of prayer and fasting or worship. And it keeps coming back to you. And you're pretty sure it's God speaking to you, but you're not entirely sure. And so what do you do then? Do you just dismiss it? You do what these guys did. God said very clearly, set aside these two guys for the work I'm going to call them to. They didn't just immediately say, all right, let's go. It says they fasted some more. And they prayed some more. And obviously what happened is they became more sure of the what and the how and the why and the when. And ultimately, the church and their brethren also felt good about it because they were praying with them. They laid hands on them and they sent them out. How do you get in the right headspace to follow Jesus? You live a life of worship. You listen when God speaks to you. You take the content of what you think God is saying to you and you think about it some more and you pray about it and you fast about it. And then you'll know when it's time for you to be released and to do the things that God calls you to do. Let me dig into those a little deeper. Number one, they worshiped. They worshiped. Now, I won't go too deep into worship today, A, because of time, B, because next week I'm going to start a, a short teaching series on the, uh, the activity of worship. And actually, it's not where I'm going. It's not really intended to be an activity. It's supposed to be a lifestyle. Like we sing, I live to worship you. Um, tragically, Christians have this habit of treating all of the things of what we think a Christian is supposed to do, like the, uh, you know, like the F, you know, the FDA's recommended diet. You know, 
I need to have a certain amount of grains, a certain amount of protein, a certain amount of this, a certain amount of that. And as long as I get it all on my plate, I'm going to have one of those plates with a little segment so they don't bleed into each other. But as long as I've got them on my plate, Jesus will be happy. Um, that really diminishes and narrows worship. God created us and designed us to worship him, to enjoy him, to be with him. That's the function and the purpose underneath how he made you. And God seeks not just acts of worship on 20 minutes for four or five songs on a Sunday morning. God seeks not just worship. He seeks worshipful people. Our chief mission in life is to worship the living God. But we have a really, really narrow understanding of worship. When you give your heart to Jesus, every location in your life becomes just as appropriate and suitable of a place to worship God as another. Every location can become sacred. Will we have some special personal places? Absolutely we will. But you need to understand that worship was never meant to be confined to a corporate church gathering in a certain specific room that begins at a certain time and ends at a certain time. Worship is the entire approach. Said said another way, the way God intended us to be is that everything I do can be worshipful. The way I parent can be worshipful. The way I work, which is probably what we spend most of our time doing, the way I work can be, should be, God looks at it to see if it is worshipful. The way I interact with people I know and I don't know, the way I parent, the way I son (laughs) to my parents, the way I budget, the way I manage my time, it's either worshipful or it isn't. Or said another way, it's all worshipful because God designed us to worship and everybody worships something and those things tell you what you worship. Because either your entire life is built around worshiping God or it's built around worshiping something else. So somebody says, well, I'm a worshiper of nothing. Well, no, then you're a worshiper of self. You're a worshiper of your own ability to not be under anybody else's control. There is that thing in life that you'll rearrange everything else after. There is that thing in life that when you have it, you can never have enough of it to feel complete. And when you don't have it, you feel desperate. There is that thing that can move you to tears. There is that thing that can, that can get your hands out of your pockets in the air or pump your fist. There is that thing that can charge you emotionally. And either God is the preeminent thing or it's not, but God made us all to worship. The danger is that because we're made to be worshipers, we'll find something to worship even if it's not God. And the way you go to figure that out is, what do I budget my time around? What do I budget my finances around? Where do my thoughts go when I'm at default? What is that thing that I just need a little bit more of? When I'm, is it more money? Is it more of my retirement? Is it seeing my 401k grow? You know you can have that same appetite for God himself. You can have that same appetite for Jesus himself. These men worshiped. And when you really understand Jesus, the noontime is holy. The morning is holy. The evening meal is holy. When you take a shower, it's like you're getting, uh, it becomes like a baptism again in Jesus when he really is the high and the exalted one that we live to worship. Our midday meal isn't just a lunch break. It becomes our communion time. So where does true worship come from? Does it come from our bodies, the right posture? Well, that can't possibly it. My, you know, my, (laughs) my, my hand or my foot doesn't decide to worship. My knee doesn't have any special love for God. So where does it 
really come from? From our heart, from our thoughts, from our imagination? That seems a little more likely. But haven't you had that experience where your, your mouth can say spiritual things and your mind can be a million miles away? Your hands can assume whatever posture you want them to assume. You can be singing along with the songs and be having other impure things inside of your heart. Where does it really come from then? Where does true worship come from? It comes from a man's spirit, deep, deep, deep inside of us. Spiritual worship, by definition, is worship originating from our spirit. So why is that so rare? Why is it so rare? I'll tell you why. It's because it's more difficult to worship from your spirit than it is to just go through a routine. Going through a routine is pretty easy. The routine of singing along with some songs that are familiar with tunes you like, with a band you like. That's easy. Reciting a dozen Lord's prayers is so routine to some of us, you could almost doze off while you do it. Coming to church twice a week, writing a check or giving online to give of your tithes and your offering, those are routines. And that's, well, that's really difficult. That's easier than quieting your spirit down and humbling yourself before God, and laying your soul bare before Him, and just trying to experience Him. It's easier. I just need something to do. Tell me what song to sing, how many Hail Marys to do, how many good acts I need to do, who I need to talk to. I'll tick off the boxes. That's easier than just saying, God, here I am, and now you are number one, and my entire life sits as a humble student at your feet. You have to empty yourself of all of your sins. You have to empty yourself of all of the noise. You have to empty yourself of all of the distractions. And that's what these men did. And I would suggest to you that it's not because their life was any less complicated than yours. I would not suggest it's because they somehow were inferior intellectually to where you sit today. These men had been deeply, deeply transformed by the gospel. They had a life-changing experience with God that they never wanted to cease, and it created in them a hunger to just be with Him, to enjoy Him, to hear from Him, to let all of their experiences just satiate upon God Himself through His Son, Jesus Christ, by enjoying the Holy Spirit. Friend, how do you get your mindset and your head in the right space to live out this life that God's called us to live. It must be absolutely drenched and immersed in a lifestyle of worship. And the biggest obstacle to that is ourself. It's ourself. Much more to say about that, but I'll leave that. I'll leave myself some meat on the bone for the next two weeks. Number two, what happened while they were worshiping? Well, they heard from God. Number two in your notes, they heard from God. God said, as they were worshiping, fasting. Bible says, the Holy Spirit said to them, God spoke to them. Holy Spirit said, how did he speak? Did he use an audible voice? Did he send an angel? Were they studying a scripture and something jumped out to them? Was it that one of these men was experiencing what Paul writes about later in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 as one of the gifts, spiritual gifts? Was it that the Holy Spirit was through the thoughts or the feelings of one of the men that was there in that room, did they say, I feel like God is saying this to us, and they shared it, and the men in the group said, that really resonates with our heart. That sounds like a God thing. I don't know what form it took. All I know is that it was clear. They all recognized it was God, and it was so much God, and so far outside of what they were expecting, they had to do some more thinking about it. But they heard from God. Fasting, worship, and prayer are pipelines for us to experience God. Have you ever tried to share a personal experience with someone else, but they just didn't quite get it? Like, I could tell you about, you know, Friday, uh, Pastor James and Chelsea and Esther and Havila and my son Chase and I, we caravaned up to Green Dragon Farmer's Market in Pennsylvania. Great experience. 
And I would love to tell you about one of the first stands that I came to. They have this thing that God created, I'm convinced, in creation called the whoopie pie. Makes my whole face happy. I'm always in the right headspace for a whoopie pie. Need no warming up. And they had just, this one uh, little couple had just tables of them, of every flavor, of every size. And it was like you put, you, you know, like if you, they were all wrapped in ceramic wrap, and you push your finger down on the top and it makes a little impression. Then when you take your finger away, it like puffs back up like one of those memory foam mattresses. <laughs> and you get the smell of baked cocoa and all the different fillings just like right in the, like a punch in the face that you really wanted. And I'm like, I only have so much money and so much space in the car, but I was ready to really increase the economic. They were glad to see me coming that day. I, I mean, I don't want to go shop for shirts, but whoopie pies, I will, part with, I will part with clothing money for whoopie pies. And no matter how hard I try this morning, unless you were standing there with me, I can't really give you a complete understanding of that experience. You know why? Because experience can never be secondary. It must only be primary. You can never have a middleman to get an experience. You have to have it for yourself. You can't get an experience simply by someone else describing it to you, and then you live vicariously through their experience. It doesn't work. You know why? Because experience means all my senses, senses are engaged. I can, I can engage your imagination. I can maybe get your taste sort of engaged. But unless you could see it for yourself, taste it for yourself, touch it for yourself, experience for itself, hear it for yourself, you're not getting the same benefit of experience sitting in the seat as I got being there firsthand. Experience is multidimensional. You have, experience means you have an encounter with all our senses fully engaged. And experience moves something out of my imagination into my reality and it stamps it on my soul. Not everybody wants an experience though. Some people just want a sample. Just want a sample. You want the taste and the smell of a nice piece of jumbo lump crab meat. But you don't want the sound and the feel of cracking open a crab over a newspaper on your friend's back porch. You want part of your senses to be engaged. You want a sample, but you don't want the full experience. They want just a few of the senses engaged, not all of them. Here's what I'm driving at. God is to be experienced. God is to be experienced. He wants all of your senses fully engaged. When we worship God, we create a meeting space that he inhabits. And as he does, we experience the fullness of his presence with all our senses. We taste and see that the Lord is good. Like the psalmist said, I'm confident I will see the Lord's goodness while I'm in the land of the living. In the New Testament, Luke 13, it says, Jesus touched her and instantly she could stand straight and she praised God. In Hebrews, we say, today if you can hear his voice, don't harden your hearts like Israel did when they rebelled. And in 1 Peter, it says, do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Speech, touch, taste, feel, hear. These are all the senses God wants you to engage. And I wonder if you've ever come to a place in life where you've truly experienced God or have you just stood on the sidelines and engaged vicariously through other people's experience, maybe had a sense or two of you engaged, but you said, you know what, I want to hear from God, but I don't want to feel him. Or I want to experience and touch God, but I definitely don't want to hear from him. It's interesting. I hear so many people bring their objections even to worship. I hear 
well, you know, music is just not my thing when it comes to worship. I worship God, but music is just, just not my thing. I don't worship God that way. Okay. Or I hear things like, well, you know, I know other people lift their hands, but I, you know, I don't stick my hands in the air. That's not really my thing. Well, if we looked at this theologically, I realize that there are some of us that our arms just don't work anymore. We have physical conditions and ailments, and some of us, you know, to lift our hands is not it. But really, if you would say to me that that's not really my thing, my question is, is there anything in life that gets you up out of your seat? I bet there is. Is there any cause in your life without even really thinking about it that you throw a hand up in the air or you pump a fist? Is there anything that does that? If God himself says, I designed you with the capacity to worship me, and in his word, he says, some of the ways you can do that is by lifting of your hands or by singing of songs. And if in heaven, they have lifting of hands and they have music and they have shouting and they have dancing and they have quiet and they have meditation, who am I to say to the creator, you know what? I don't do that. I'm glad Jesus didn't say, you know what? I'm willing to be crucified, but I don't do this. It's not so much that God's going after a specific form, but when we say to God, you know what, I know you created me and I know you deserve my worship, but I'm just cut a little bit different. I don't do it this way. I won't give you that. Even though you made me to do that and you give permission for me to do that, I'm not going to do that. I really think you need to be honest with yourself and say this is less about a personal style. There's something deeper that's holding you back from that. Well, it makes me uncomfortable. Okay, so there's an approval part of this. Or that's not the way I grew up being taught. Okay, I think those are interesting reasons, but are those reasons for us to really say, I'm going to diminish my expressions of my worship to God. I'm going to diminish those things because I've decided in my own heart, in contradiction to the scripture, that those things are off limits to God and that that's just not for me. I don't think God's standing up in heaven and be like, you know what, if you don't ever stick your hands up in the air, your worship is inferior. That's not what he's saying. It's more about your heart, and your heart says, even though God made me for this, I've decided he's not going to get that from me because it makes me uncomfortable. That's an issue between you and your creator. Can I encourage you to not live in such bondage? It's not about whether you stick your hand, because you can stick your hand up in the air, or you can put your hand in your pockets. One doesn't mean worship, and the other doesn't. One can be, you know, (laughs) we're not going to go that deep into it. I'm more saying, if you've decided in your heart, I will never do this for God, that's an issue. I would want you to walk through and say, why can't I surrender that to God? Why can't I surrender that part of the leadership of my life to who God is? God wants you to fully engage with him with all of your senses. What is it like to experience God? Experiencing God is rarely how you think it will be, to be honest. What does it mean to experience God? It means to have practical contact with him, to feel, to encounter him. So to experience God means to have practical contact with the Almighty means to feel him with your senses. It means to encounter the sovereign king of the universe in a personal, tangible way. Well, how do I do that? How long does it take? Experiencing God takes patience. It begins with reverence. It begins with respect. It requires us to stop filling our head with noise and focus our time and our attention on God. If you're serious about experiencing God, you have to give him opportunities to come close to you. And I know a lot of us say, listen, I do 90 minutes every Sunday. God is not looking for you to carve out 90 minutes so you can feel better about taking the other six and three-quarter days and ignoring him. I hear other people say, well, God, I give God a tenth of my time. Why? So you can take him out of the other 90%? That's just backwards. You're inventing all kinds of things the Bible doesn't say. God gets it all. 
That doesn't, you know, if we just look at it like, you know, uh, you know the song we sang, um, I'm going to worship you forever. Some of you are terrified by that. Like, I can't do that. I can't just go up in the treehouse and pull up the, the ladder and sing songs. My voice will go hoarse. I'll run out of Chris Tomlin CDs. Something bad's going to happen. Yeah, if you narrow worship to just being you closing your eyes in a treehouse with a CD player and Chris Tomlin. When you go to work, do you have to stop worshiping God? Can you work worshipfully? Is your work worshipful? If not, you should probably change the way you work. Because if your work's not worshipful, your worship isn't getting through either. Because God doesn't compartmentalize. Are you spousing in a worshipful way? Are you studenting in a worshipful way? Are you waiting in line in the post office? Are you driving on the beltway a worshipful way? Repentance, altar call, right? Let's move on. God wants to be experienced. But you have to make space to experience him. And the way you do that is you declutter your heart of your sin and you declutter your mind of your noise and you'll experience him. You'll find he's much closer than you thought he was. So here's a whole message in a minute. God spoke to these guys then, right? It says, set apart Barnabas and Saul. They're going to be the first missionaries, blah, 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 blah. How, does, does God still talk that way? You said, we'll hear from God. He'll show me things. I have a couple questions, okay? I'll give you some quick answers that really all deserve their own message. Does God still speak today like he did then? If God ever could, then he still can because God doesn't change. Fair enough? Okay. Why don't I hear him? We're not as good listeners as maybe they were that day. Who does God speak to? Just apostles and teachers? No, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, no one is excluded from the possibility of hearing God speak. He spoke to people who knew him. And he spoke to people who didn't know him, like Saul on the road to Damascus. He speaks to people who are praying, and he speaks to people who are meditating murder. He speaks to people who are obeying his will, and he speaks to people who are in a boat going the opposite direction. He speaks to very old people who are hanging out in the temple waiting to see Jesus before they died. And he speaks to very young people who never heard God before, like Samuel, who kept hearing from God and getting it wrong every time. He can speak to you. There is no prerequisite. If you can breathe, he can speak to you. Well, how does God speak? Is there one specific way? Well, he speaks from the inside out and from the outside in. There's a lot of different ways. He can speak from the inside out through your thoughts, through your spirit, through your feelings that he gives inside of you through his Holy Spirit. He can also speak from the outside in, thank God he does, through his creation, through his word, through his messengers, through signs and wonders, through, through all kinds of other different patterns, through an audible voice. Well, God, why doesn't God still speak in audible voices? Because you have his spirit inside of you now. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. They had to hear God audibly. That was like one of their own few options that they had. I'm thankful he doesn't have to speak to me audibly. That means I'm his kid and his spirit lives in me now. When does he speak? Um, Anytime is an opportune time for him to speak to us. He'll speak at a time of your convenience or his convenience. Well, what does God talk about? Things that matter to you and things that matter to him. Rarely will he talk to you about things that matter to neither of you. Well, does everything that matters to me matter to God? Well, you matter to God. He says, cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. There's some things I care about that God doesn't, but because he cares to me, he humors me. (laughs) And he listens to me because he cares for me. But I'll tell you, the closer you walk to God, the conversation turns more of me saying to God, what's on your mind? Rather than him always having to say, well, what's on your mind? Number three, they fastened and prayed about what they heard. Worship team, you can come join me. I'll land the plane here. I am a little terrified, Linda, I was thinking, you know, the unmanned Southwest flight this week. I'm a little terrified by that, but you weren't one of the people on that flight, were you? 
No, I saw the all, it was like an all-female crew that was on the unmanned flight, which I thought was kind of cool, you know. You were, you were on an unmanned flight before. Several. Wow, and you're still here. I've never been on an unmanned flight. Not on my bucket list. Might be the bucket for me, you know, I don't know. If I, <laughs> she says, well, if you were on it, it was manned. Because man, unmanned. It's as good as it gets around here. People come here just for the jokes, right? <laughs> So what did they do after they heard this thing? God, just, they're worshiping. Listen, they're worshiping. They're minding their own business. Have a good time with God. And all of it says, all right, you two, you're going to do something. You know, you two, I'm going to tell you today, Barnabas, Saul, you're going to be set apart from your other buddies here. And you're going to go do something that's never been done before. <laughs> Have you ever just been minding your own business in the presence of God? And he just dropped something in your heart that you're like, that's totally not for me. That's not even really welcome right now. I don't even know what to do with that. If you haven't, can I invite you into that part of living with God? It will never be dull. This happens to me a lot. Um, I call it brain hurricanes. And unfortunately, sometimes Pastor James bears the brunt of my brain hurricanes. I'll like be over at the park walking around praying over lunch. I'll be like, I had a brain hurricane. And sometimes he's like, great. And other times he's like, I do, like I'm right in the middle of, you know, doing something. I was like, it doesn't matter. I'm the boss. So I'm going to tell you anyway. You know, but it's, it, you have these moments where God just walks in and what do you do? I had some joker walk up to me a couple weeks ago, a guy I really respect, a, uh, a spiritual superior of mine from another church in this part of the district who came up to me at a conference and said, he grabbed me by the, I was wearing another blue shirt with this same exact, I think I was wearing these jeans too. I do have more than one pair of jeans and I do wash them. Um, he grabs me, he goes, brother, I have a word of the Lord for you. I'm like, bring it on, I'm ready. And I'm just, he goes, prepare. And I'm like, I open one eye because I'm like waiting for the rest of it. He just says, prepare and he walks away like he had just dropped something like prepare for what like do i need to like buy storm shutters for my house is another tree gonna fall on us is a car gonna die prepare for like that was just ominous like are north koreans gonna launch something imminently do i need to you know i'm already kind of a prepper kind of a guy do i need to get more spam for the basement you know what do i need to do I don't know if you've ever gotten something like that. He said it was from God. I trusted him. It was so vague. Prepare. The end of the world is now. Like, what do I do? I'm, I'm, so I got saved on the way home again. I repented for everything again. I mean, I'm just, what do I prepare for? I can't tell you the end of the story because it's getting more clear now, but it's still unfolding. You know what I had to do? I just had to say, okay, God, we're going to have to talk about this some more. I don't know what to prepare for. I don't want to just go around being panicked all the time. I got a little piece of the puzzle, but I didn't get the whole thing. Saul and Barnabas heard clearly from God, but before they just got in a boat and peaced out to everybody, they fasted and they prayed some more. Something I like to ask people when they come to me for advice, which I realize you're at the low rung of the ladder if you're coming to me for life advice. But a lot of, you know, what I do, people, you know, trust that I have wisdom, and I do. Sometimes it's easy for me to share wisdom in other people's lives and apply it to my own. It seems so much clearer when it's you than when it's my own life. But one of the things I usually ask folks is, well, well, pastor, here's what's in front of me. I don't know what to do about it. What do you think? And my question to them is usually first, well, what has God said to you as you've been fasting and praying over this? What's God telling you? Well, I, I don't know. I, that's what I come to you for. I'm not I'm like, like I'm not some genie in a bottle. You just come to me and I'm like, here's what you need to do. The truth of the matter is you should be more invested in that than me. I'm generally not going to be more invested personally in your life and your dilemmas than you are or you in mine. 
But the reality is, you'll find this amazing thing. If you think God's talking to you and you keep thinking about it and you fast and pray, it will get more clear one way or the other. You will get a better sense of what it is and what it isn't. It's like a baby being in the womb. You may only know that, hey, the test came back positive. God spoke to me. I have no idea if it's a boy or a girl when it's going to be born, blah, 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 blah. But the more you fast and you pray over those trimesters, it starts to take more shape. It starts to turn into this and not that. You start to rule some things out, and guess what? You may still have a birth, and the thing may come to pass, but it still not, might not be exactly what you thought it was originally. But you've got to put in the work of spending some more time in fasting and praying. And maybe you're there. You know God's spoken to you. He's shown you something. You're not exactly sure what to do with what you're seeing. The solution is fast and pray and absolutely involve some of the people you trust in getting some wisdom. Not that we can't help, but man, it's a whole lot faster when you're in there with your you know, elbow deep in prayer and fasting, not just those people you're going to. And then finally... They were sent out on a mission. They were sent out. Now, Luke could have said they went out. Luke could have said they decided to leave. But he says very specifically, at some point along the line, we don't know when, they got done fasting and praying, and Barnabas and Saul said, all right, we're going to leave the place where we live. We're going to leave our families, if they had families at that time. We're going to get on a boat. We're going to go somewhere. And we're going to tell people about the gospel. We don't know who's going to be waiting for us there. The email hasn't been invented yet, so we can't just send along ahead of time. We may not know exactly what we're going to do to pay our bills when we get there. We can't itinerate. There was no Assemblies of God at that time that could plug them into a nice four-year training program and print out a spreadsheet about exactly how much they'd need in their monthly budget. They just knew that God was speaking, and they said, we're ready to go. But here's what they did before they went. It says, everybody laid hands on them, and they were sent out. There's a difference between being sent and just going. My wife will send me to the store sometimes. And that is much different than when I just go to the store. When you go to the store, especially when you're hungry and you push around a cart, things will jump into your cart. You had no plan to get in there. This is what happens when you go to Target for socks and you come out $76 later. Who knew, you know, they had such a sale on wipes today and you just needed a lot for the next year. Let's stock up now. That's when you go to the store. When you are sent to the store, you're on a mission. I'm not going because I chose to go. There is someone who matters to me who gave me an instruction to go with a specific purpose. There's accountability for it. I'm going to go in on my mission. I'm going to accomplish my mission. I'm going to bring it back and say, here, babe, I know you said you wanted fruit. Here is five pounds worth. And she says, just what are we going to do with five pounds of fruit? And sometimes it messes up, but story, that's a true story, but there's better ones. Uh, the reality is, when we end this service every week at 11.35, I'm really not trying to be cute or clever when I say, I want to pray a prayer of commission over you, and I want to send you out of here. I don't just say, hey, we're going to dismiss this, this service, just go do what you want to do. I really hope that at some point it sinks in into your heart that what happens between 10 and 11.30 is not the totality of my Christian life for the week. This is time for us to be together, to be inspired, to encourage each other, to worship God together, to give together, to hear from the Word together. And then the work starts. The mission begins. And you are sent. What if you said, I don't just go to work today. I'm being sent to work. I'm not just going to the grocery store. I'm being sent to the grocery store. I'm not just going over to my neighbor's house. Blah, blah, blah. I'm being sent there. Do you know how your whole mindset towards that activity would change towards being a gospel-centric view of what you're doing? The Bible is very clear. They didn't just go. They were sent out. And in just a few moments, 
we're going to send you out. My two questions is, what is God showing you? And how are you responding to it? Will you bow your head and close your eyes with me as the worship team begins to play? I'm going to give you a chance to make a, a decision right now about your relationship with God. As you do that, I'm going to invite our prayer team, those men and those women that are serving us today by standing in for prayer. If, if you would come forward and just find some spots here on my right and my left to prepare to serve our people this morning by praying with them. Here's the invitation. Every single week, last week not being an, ex- an exception, we give an opportunity at this point in our service for people to make a decision to be in right relationship with God through Jesus Christ. had a great conversation with a gentleman last week making that decision in his life. I want to give you a chance, whether you're watching on Facebook, if you made it this far into the video, congratulations. If you're listening to the podcast, you're here in the auditorium. This all revolves, discipleship begins with a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. What do you mean? Simple as A, B, C. You admit that you're a sinner. A. B. You believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, He came to earth, He lived the life we should have lived, He died the death we deserved on the cross to pay the penalty for the rebellious life we do live. That He didn't remain dead, but that three days later, God raised Him up from the dead, brought Him back to life, defeating death. And that He is alive today, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And He's drawing you into a relationship with Him. So you have to admit, you have to believe, and see, you have to choose. Choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior. That means you must choose that He is now the Lord, that He sits at the driver's seat of your life. He sits on the throne of the kingdom of your life, and you step aside, and now you serve Him, and you follow Him. 